Yesterday, we had the regional competition for Bibleville, and that's the first time that we hosted that here at the church. And uh, Sharon did a wonderful job at coordinating a thousand little details, and the kids did wonderful. There was six churches, and I think the furthest one came from Abilene. Uh, that's quite the distance. But um, it was neat that uh, all the volunteers got up and, and spent their Saturday helping out, and, and they uh, took care of all the details. I mean, there's a thousand details, and uh, sharing with all the volunteers, they did everything, and from what I understand, everything went really well. I got to see the North Oaks kids uh, do their Bible drill, and they did really well. Um, I, I heard that it was a lot better than all the other churches. I, I can't confirm that, but that's just kind of what I heard. Is they were just so impressed. Um, I was I was very impressed. They, the ability to uh, search out scriptures. I I have to put. <laughs> I'm going to do a lot of verses. I got to put it in my notes because I'm I'm just not that quick at, at getting to the scripture. Uh, spend more time flipping through the page than actually preaching. Uh, so uh, it, it's, it was neat to see that, and so um, you'll want to, if you see one of the Bible drillers or one of the volunteers that are sharing, you'll want to give a, a big hug and a kiss and, and thank them for all, the, all that they did yesterday. Uh, I wanted to give a quick update. Uh, Wednesday I gave a prayer request about Jonathan and Hannah Romaine as they, um, uh, they're having to travel back to the States. They're missionary co-workers. Uh, Karen and I, when we were missionaries in Spain, we were in the same city, Salamanca. Uh, they moved to another city called uh, Logroño with my sister and with her husband. And uh, this last week, they uh, discovered that their son had a very malignant brain tumor. And uh, something that's not really operable, and, and there's just a, a, a little bit of time, 8 to 12 months of a of a survival rate. Uh, they've had to pack up and, and come back to the States. They're going to Cincinnati because there's a hospital there that might be able to do something. Uh, they're not going to Cincinnati because they have a home or because they have uh, a family there, but because uh, that's where the hospital's at. So they end up flying yesterday. They finally made it to the States. Uh, there's a thousand details, as you can imagine, leaving one country, going to another country. Uh, would you please be praying for Jonathan and Hannah Romaine and for the doctors? And uh, Ian is the, the kid's name. Uh, he was um, born in the same hospital that Leah was a month after Leah was born. Also be praying for uh, my sister and her husband. They were planning on doing this church plant as a team. And right now, part of the team is gone. And uh, the church, uh, someone gave a generous offering uh, during the pandemic. And so during the pandemic, they were remodeling this, uh, this uh, uh, place on the second floor of this building. And they put in, they painted, they got everything ready. As uh, Spain started lowering restrictions, they started having meetings there. So there's a church plant that is, is going on, and it's at a critical point where you don't want to just leave it and then try to start it again. So eh, they're going to need some help. They're going to need some people to go and help them uh, during this time. So be praying for the ministry there in Logroño in this uh, 
Baptist Church, only Baptist Church in Logroño, that's uh, being started. We're in Nahum chapter 3, Nahum chapter 3, and uh, we'll be reading from verses 1 through verse 19. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word, Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. This is the word of the Lord, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage, her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, countless dead bodies, they stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlots. Charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells the nations by her harlotries, and the families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your faces and show the nations your nakedness. And to the kingdoms your disgrace, I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shriek from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Who will seek comforters for you? You are better, are you better than Noaman? which was situated by the waters of the Nile, with water surrounding her, whose rampant was the sea, whose wall consisted of the, of the sea. Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limit. Put and uh, Levin were among her helpers. Yes, she became in exile. She went into captivity. Also her small children were dashed into pieces, and the head of every street, the cast, they cast lots, for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. You too will become drunk, and you will be hidden. You will search for refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are opened wide into your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars, drawn for yourselves water for a siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There a fire will consume you. A sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourselves like the creeping locust. Multiply yourselves like the swarming locust. For you have increased your treasures more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts, the marshals are like the hordes of grasshoppers, settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee, and the place where they were is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are laying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has your evil, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can rejoice in the fact that um, we had a great Saturday of Bible drill competition. Thank you for all the volunteers who gave up their Saturday to be helping out and making sure that um, uh, all the kids were uh, drilled correctly. Father, thank you for 
uh, how you uh, are guiding and working in the life of Jonathan and Hannah Romaine and her son Ian. Uh, Father, I pray for this ministry in, in Logroño that um, you will bring the right people to help in the ministry as that church continues to get established. Father, as we're looking at this text now, I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would illumine our minds. Father, there's, there's not anything that we can, no illustrations we can give, no type of rhetoric that we can develop that can change our heart. It's your spirit working in our, in our hearts and our minds to change us from our desires to, to values in you. And I pray now that your spirit would use your word to conform us to the image of your son because we know that that brings you glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. During the history of the church, uh, there has been a debate that has gone around, and it re regards, will God really judge the wicked? Will he really totally destroy the wicked? Will he punish the wicked? And some have cited on the side of God's attribute of love. And as they examine this attribute of love, they, they wonder, how is it possible that God, who is a God that loved the world, loved the world so much, he loved it in this way, that he sent his son to die for sinners and placed the punishment of sin on Jesus. How could that God that loves the world so much possibly punish a person and then punish that person for all eternity? I mean, it's punishment enough to just live in this world, this sin-ridden world. Anyone that has to drive through Houston knows this is a sin-ridden world. People cutting you off, traffic, your blood pressure is sky high just by, by the time you get there, wherever you're going. And, and, and you realize we live in a sinful world. People doing hand gestures to you and weaving in and out. Could there possibly that God is is going to then judge after that? Having to live in this world, God's going to then judge? Others look at the text, and while they don't like the concept of it, they don't rejoice in the fact, but they see that the Scriptures does present a judgment of the wicked. And while it's not something pleasant that we like to just celebrate, one has to side on the side of Scripture rather than one's theological constructs. In other words, God is loving, but God is also just. And holiness defines both his love and his justice. You can't just say he's all love because that would ignore his other attributes. It's not like he, he sometimes exalts his one attributes over another. No, he's equal in perfection. He's equal in all his attributes. So just as he is loving, he's also just. And therefore, he has to judge the wicked. Now, there, there's good news that the payment for sin was put on Christ, but only those who believe, those who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, uh, end up receiving that righteousness of Christ. Now, as we look in this, we've been noticing this is a, a vision that Nahum has been having about Nineveh. The, the historical context is that we find that this is maybe about 100 years after Jonah had gone to Nineveh and preached. He, he preached, and, and he was supposed to make his way through the city, and he had this super short message that God was going to destroy the city in 40 days. 
He, he went one day, and, and the people heard it. Just one day. And the whole city repented. They, they changed their clothes, and they put on sackcloth. They, they had ashes. They went into uh, where they weren't eating. They, they, they stopped eating. They, they fasted, and they made their animals fast. And they prayed out to God. They cried out to God to, to please be merciful. In a hundred years' time, some things had changed in Nineveh. They became very powerful, and they used their power to be extremely wicked. Now, what we're going to look at this in this text is that you must turn away from your unfaithful love of God and love Him with all your heart. And th I believe that's the message that chapter 3 presents to us, that we must turn away from our unfaithful love, and love him with all our heart. We see that in verses 1 through 7, uh, that there's this unfaithful love. He says, whoa, it's a, it's a cry of the prophets, a grievous, threatening cry. To, to, it marks, whoa, this bloody city. They had all this uh, power, incredible amount of power. But they, they lacked compassion. They, they were so mean to those who were their enemies. The her there in that verse is, uh, sets up a, a, a possibilities of interpretation. The her relates to, syntactically, to the city. Both are the same in, in gender and number. So it could be that the city Nineveh has been, as it says, uh, the noise of whips, the noise of the rattling wheel. They have been evil. They have, they have attacked. They've been like these horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, and they've left corpses upon corpses. But the her can also have a different meaning. Uh, it could also re uh, be a conceptual her of those who are going to come and attack the city, those who are going to come and destroy the city. Now, uh, the sentence, the, the, the grammar of the sentence would relate to Nineveh. Chapter 2 would point to the fact that there's an army that's coming that will destroy Nineveh. And I think this uh, verses 1 through 7 sets up uh, a little bit of ambiguity because uh, it, it kind of has both meanings. They have been extremely wicked in how they have killed. They've been ruthless with their chariots and with their horses and their swords or spears. And, and they've amounted corpses upon corpses. But then the same measure as they have dealt out, they will receive. And it says, look, there's going to be just this countless bodies. People stumbling over the bodies. Every culture has uh, a way of, of dealing with, with the dead. Every culture does. In Venezuela... Uh, the time that I grew up in Venezuela, there, the funeral homes didn't really um, prepare the body for an expended, uh, uh, long period of time. Uh, so if a person passed away, usually everybody was informed and they had to go to the funeral home uh, right away. And usually the family and the friends stayed there at the funeral home all night. Uh, there wasn't uh, food that was prepared. Was, there would be a little bit of coffee and a little bit of food and and you would spend at the funeral home all, all night long. And then the next day, you would uh, take the, the, the body to the, to the burial site and, and bury them. And then everybody just goes home. And, and that's culturally what I grew up with. And, of course, 
you know how culture is. Culture is whatever culture you grow up with. That's what's right. That's what's correct. That's that's the way to do it. Spain, it was a little bit different. Spain, you go to the funeral home and they have a a, a room where the family can gather and and they have a a, a glass and they put the coffin kind of uh, stand up and you can see the person kind of standing up like that. And they have these lights and and so you you kind of come into the room and then you go up to the glass and you can stand there and see the person. It's like they're standing there in front of you. Well, that was quite different for me from what I grew up in Venezuela. I mean, that was, that was quite strange. I, I'm used to seeing just laying down, and they got them standing up. That, that, that's quite odd. That's not what you do. And then afterwards, they, if you want to, you can go and have them buried. You, you rent the plot. You can rent it for five years, 20 years, or 50 years. But it expires. The plot expires. And then they pull the bones out, and they put it in the bone pile. It's marked, but... That's how, it, that's how they do it. And, and that seems right to them. It seems odd to me. Here in the States, we also have a culture. They sometimes bring the body to the church. Now, why would you bring the body to the church? Again, my culture, <laughs> where I grew up, you don't do that. But they do that here. And then afterwards, there's a time of of, of eating, where the people, the family, and the friends, they eat. I've never seen that. Uh, why would you eat afterwards? But there's everywhere there's a culture of what do you do, how do you uh, remember those who have passed away? But as you look at this text, they're stumbling over their bodies. There's nobody to care for them. No one. No one even goes to the bother to, to deal with They're just everywhere. Why? Verse 19, it says that people will be clapping their hands. Why? Because their evil passed continually over everyone. No one will come and and mourn them. No one will come to take care of the dead. Their ruthlessness is what they're going to get. As they measured out ruthlessness, that's what they're going to receive. Now, why? Why are they being treated like that? Verse 4 says, because of the many harlotries of the harlot. They they were unfaithful. They were unfaithful. About a hundred years earlier, Jonah had gone and preached. They had repented. They had turned to God. But now they don't turn to God. And then they, their sorceries. This sorcery was where they, they would try to pretend that they had the power of God when they didn't have the relationship with God. They, they had a form of godliness in power, but they didn't have a relationship with God. You remember in Exodus chapter 7, 8 through 13, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. And you remember the, the, the scene there. Uh, Moses tells Aaron, throw your rod down. He throws it down, and that rod turns into a snake. Pharaoh calls his wise men and his sorcerers over, and he says, do the same thing. And and sure enough, they grab their rods, and they throw it on the floor, and to their surprise, they turn into snakes too. And then they're like, hot dog, I didn't think that was going to happen, but it did. And then what happens? Oh, Aaron's rod that turned into a snake ate all their snakes. 
And it showed who was the real powerful God. The God that Aaron and Moses served was God of gods. And, Mo and Pharaoh couldn't do a thing about it. Here is an individual who pretends to have God's power, but through their own resources. The, the, apart from God, separate from God. What's the consequence? What, what should they do according to the law to sorcerers? Well, Exodus 22 Verse 18 says, you shall not allow a sorcerer to live. You, you don't allow them to live. The, the death penalty was for these people. They are unfaithful, and they are seeking a power apart from God. And God says he's going to humble them. He, he's going to uh, totally humiliate them, as it says in verses uh, 5 through 7. And specifically, he asked the question, who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Again, verse 19 says, there won't be. The wicked will perish at the hands of the Lord, and there will be no one to go there and comfort. No one will grieve over them. Now, as we continue to see this in verses 8 through 17, we see that they had an unreliable power. An unreliable power. They, they had unfaithful hearts, but they also had unreliable power. It, it, it brags a little bit about their accomplishment. And their accomplishment, it says, it talks about in verse 8, how they um, uh, were able to conquer uh, 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 Thebes, uh, Noamon, the city there in Egypt. On one side they had, in the north, they had the Mediterranean. They also had the River Nile, and, and they were protected. And they were protected because uh, it was hard to come through the Mediterranean and then uh, get off the ships and attack the city. But it was also hard to come uh, from the east and, and cross the delta part and attack the city. Well, the river flooded uh, in a predictable way. The rains would rain in Sudan and Ethiopia, the Blue, uh, Blue Nile and the White Nile uh, would get a bunch of water and it would go down and become the Nile. Uh, it was predictable when it was going to flood. And that's how they could have all the crops. But what could not be predicted was how the, the different channels would, uh, would divide once it got to the delta. As the waters diminished during the dry season, uh, the landscape would change and then as the rivers would flow again, uh, at times, uh, Thebes or, or Noamon was, was an uh, island. It was, it was a complete island. You had to cross a couple different rivers just to get to it. There was no way of predicting how the channels would be. So this military feat of, of Nineveh coming and attacking and winning over them is an incredible thing. They were so powerful, but they were not powerful enough. Nineveh was strong, but not strong enough. And compares them to, to a fig tree, a ripe fig tree. A, a ripe fig tree that it, it kind of condenses the whole eating process. They, they come up to the fig tree and they shake it almost uh, with their mouth open. They cut out the fact that they, they shake the, the limb and, and they catch the fruit. They go home and they wash it and uh, then they cut it up and they eat it. No, all of that gets condensed down as if the people are standing underneath the tree, just shaking it with their mouths open, ready to consume it. That's what's going to happen to Nineveh. 
even though they were so strong to be able to attack Noamon, there's nothing that they can do. They'll be consumed. And it talks about um, that all their people, all their people in, in verse uh, 13, your people have become uh, are, are women in their midst. Now, there's three different interpretations that you can take, and um, you can choose which one you prefer. Uh, it could be that uh, this is just an insult to, to women. Like, you, you guys are a bunch of ladies. You know, that, That's one way of understanding that verse. The other way of understanding the verse is that all the men are killed, and there are only women left. So the fact that it's saying that uh, your people are women in your midst is that all the men have been destroyed. They've all been killed. A third option, which probably is a preferable option, is understanding the traditional roles of the culture at that time. Men were supposed to protect and secure, and like it or not, women were supposed to have children. They were not supposed to be protecting and securing Yet none of the men were able to protect and secure against the devastation that God was bringing against them. And so it says, there's nothing you can do. And it encourages them to strengthen your fortifications. Go, go and make clay. Get clay and, and mortar and, and make some bricks. If you read the, the accounts, the secular accounts, they, they did try to do that. They, they tried to make more bricks to patch up the walls while the Babylonians and the Medes were outside. They tried desperately to fortify the city. Nothing could stop the Babylonians and the the Medes. Even though they multiplied themselves and they tried to strengthen as much as they could, there was nothing to be done. Verses 18 and 19, we see just this worthless leaders that they had. A worthless leaders that calls them shepherds. Uh, shepherds was also used for Israel. Uh, Ezekiel 34 talks about the, the bad shepherds of Israel who, who just took of the sheep and, and consumed for themselves. The, the leadership of Assyria has, has done wrong. And, and they ended up with what? With a wound that's incurable. No one can heal this. No one can do anything about it. And what's ended up is with just the people clapping their hands because even though they had a lot of power, all they did was use it to be ruthless. Now, you say, goodness, this, this is a terrible passage to read on a Sunday morning. I mean, this is, this is very hard. I mean, talking about corpses and talking about dead people and then talking about destruction and, and people cheering for the destruction. This is not very encouraging at all. What can we get out of this? How how can we apply this to our lives? I think as we look at this, uh, I'd like to work my way backwards. We worked our way 1 through 19. Now we're going to work our way 19 back to uh, the first part of the chapter. But we must turn away from our unfaithful love of God and love Him with all our heart. And we see that by, first of all, 18 and 19, to be careful of how you lead. Be careful how you lead. The the kings of Assyria were greedy. They wanted more and more. They wanted more power. They wanted more riches. They wanted more land. They wanted more. They just wanted more. 
And because they wanted more and more, they were willing to do whatever it took to get more and more. Whatever it took. The desire of their heart was to have more. And because they desired, because they lived for their desire, they were willing to do whatever it took to get more. So they became ruthless. It was through their ruthlessness that they demonstrated what was their heart's desire. And their heart's desire was greedy. They wanted more. Now, we have to be careful because there's always consequences to our decisions. And there are always, quote-unquote, innocent people that are going to suffer because of our decisions. Everybody who is a leader and the way you lead, there are people that are following you that are going to suffer the consequences of your decisions. You think about parents. Parents that want to live based on their desires. And they live on their desires and they live and they focus. It affects their children. Not that their children are innocent before the Lord. They all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, but there's consequences for people who aren't even involved. They're just following the leader. Be careful how you lead. Now, you can either lead based on your desires. Whatever your heart wants, you can lead that way. And you search what your heart wants, but your heart is wicked. It's deceitful. It'll trick you. You, you think that uh, you're doing something for the Lord, but you're not. You're just living for your desires. Or you can live and lead according to your values. And those are the values that you find in God's Word. More than 100 years earlier from this time, Jonah had gone and preached. And, and the people had repented. They, they knew God. But somehow they just all forgot about that. Generation after generation, they just forgot about it. And what's interesting is that the siege took about four months. So it wasn't like an instantaneous thing. Four months, the Babylonians and the Medes were outside their walls, and not a single one of the leaders said, hey, wasn't there some prophet that, that preached, and we, we, we turned to God, and, and we were saved? Oh, yeah, I think I remember that. Not a single one of them remembered the Lord. Why? because they were all living for their desire rather than their values. People suffer when the leadership lives according to their desires rather than their values. Now, a second thing that we see, which is in verses 8 through 17, is that you might be powerful, but you're not that powerful. You might be powerful, but you're just not that powerful. Uh, Nineveh had uh, accomplished some incredible things. I mean, just from a military conquest, uh, taking, taking siege, I mean, that's an incredible thing to do. But as they marched down to Egypt and into the Delta, they conquered, and because they desired, they were so ruthless, they were so evil, that uh, the way that they were so ruthless and evil, uh, God was going to bring judgment on them. And it's an it's a important biblical principle that is established. Genesis chapter 9, verse 5 and 6, we see where God is establishing the Noahic covenant. He's making a covenant with Noah. And he's saying this is how things are going to be. And one of those things is, it says, Surely I will require, require your uh, lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man 
from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he is made. There is a principle that if you're going to be violent, you'll die a violent death. Uh, Jesus talks about this. You remember the night he's there in Gethsemane. And uh, there comes the people to, to get him. And, and Peter pulls out the sword and he goes and he cuts off the ear of the slave of the, the servant of the high priest. And, and, and Jesus rebukes. And Jesus says in Matthew 26, 52, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. It's, it's the principle of reaping and sowing of sowing and reaping. You plant and you'll harvest. Galatians chapter 6, 7 through 10, uh, it's an important passage that deals with this principle. It says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of the faith. There's the sowing and reaping. What you plant is what you're going to harvest. And if you harvest violence, you're going to get violence. You're, if you going to harvest, that you go into the meeting and you're the top dog and you're going to talk mean to everybody, you're going to get it. There's always somebody else who's tougher than you. And you say, no, there's nobody tougher than me. Oh, there is. There always is. And it's not the biblical way of living. The temptation is to react violently against those people who act harshly. But that's not what God presents. The question is, what do you want to reap? Depending on what you want to reap, that's what you're going to have to start planting. Now, I want to apply this to two different areas. The first is to parents. There's a tendency to teach kids to be like, if they hit you, you hit them back. If they kick you, you kick them back twice. You, you be the, the meanest, roughest person. Don't, don't let anybody talk to you or, or, or say anything to you. And there's, there's that attitude that parents sometimes teach. It's, it's not the attitude that the scriptures teach. There's an attitude of weakness that uh, the scriptures teach. In Nahum chapter 1, uh, verse 7, it talks about seeking refuge in God, not, not being self-reliant. Uh, as you teach your kids, teach them to be weak in Christ and then they'll be strong. Because if they try to be strong in their own power, they're just going to become a bunch of bullies. Teach them to be weak in Christ. Now, I want to talk to those who are involved in discipleship ministry in our church. You um, teach Sunday school. You teach uh, Wednesday night or, or Sunday night or women's Bible study, or you uh, uh, teach in Bible drill any type of teaching ministry that you're involved in discipling other people here. Any ministry, we have to teach weakness. This weakness, Paul makes a point in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 
7 through 10. You remember where he's got this thorn in the flesh, and he's begging God three times, please take this away from me. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul recognizes that it's through his weakness that he becomes strong. His weakness in Christ, a dependence on Christ, that he can actually be strong. All our ministries at our church need to focus on that, that there's only strength in Christ. How do you live, how do you get sanctified? Because you're going to, this time you're really not going to sin. Please. You'll fall again. There's only hope by being weak in Christ. And then you can be strong. All our ministries need to focus on that. Jesus presents a radical way of living in Matthew chapter 5, 1 through through 8. Um, you guys remember the Beatitudes? Uh, I think um, Gary talked about the Beatitudes. If you don't remember, we could go back over Matthew again. You're like, no, we had enough of Matthew. Uh, we need to move on to other things. Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 8. He, he talks about, uh, as he's talking to the crowds, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Not the self-sufficient. Not the toughest and the meanest. But those who are gentle and humble. He he goes on to say in Matthew 5, 38 through 44, I mean, this is a radical way of living. It says, you have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil person. For whoever slaps you, On your right cheek, turn the other also to him. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus teaches a radical way of totally different. <clears throat> now, we have to be careful how we lead. We have to be also uh, realize that we're not the most powerful. And the last thing, as we move backwards, is to guard our hearts, verses 1 through 7. We're in Nahum 3, 1 through 7. <clears throat> At the center of these verses is verse 4, where it gives the reason why they're having this destruction. And it specifically says, because of their unfaithfulness. Chapter 1, verse 2, the first description of God is that he is a jealous God. He he doesn't share his glory with anyone else. And those who are his, he doesn't allow you to worship him and worship somebody else. He, He doesn't do that. If you're going to worship God, if you're going to be God's, you'll worship only God. And and that's it. No one else. He's a jealous God. But here Nineveh, even though that they heard this message from Jonah, even though they repented, something happened in the communication to the second generation and to the third generation where they started going and worshiping other gods. They weren't faithful to God. They were unfaithful. The law in Deuteronomy 30, 20 tells us to obey his voice, hold fast to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. 
Now, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 22, 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. There's a guarding of your heart to live based on the values you find in God's word rather than on your desires. Here they had been unfaithful to the Lord, and now they were going to be destroyed. They had opportunity, but they went away from the Lord. Now, each year they should have gone back and reconsecrated themselves to the Lord. They should have, they should have sought to have more prophets come, paid the way for other prophets of Israel to come and, and preach, but they didn't. I wonder about us. Oh, it was the faith of my grandfather, and I come to church on Sunday because, you know, it's something to do, or else I'd have to go cut my grass, and I don't want to do that. It's already getting too hot, so I'm at church. No, we should be here because we love the Lord, because we want to worship only Him. We must turn away from our unfaithful love of God and love Him with all our heart. And to do this, we have to be careful how we lead. We have to realize that we're strong only when we're weak in Christ, and we must guard our heart. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we consider this text and we think about this moment of invitation and maybe areas in our life that we might need to change. Father, there might be someone here that, that has never trusted Christ as their Savior. There's never been a moment where they put their faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And I pray, Father, that today would be the day of salvation. Father, I pray for other of us here who we've been living unfaithful lives, a heart that's divided, trying to worship you and worship our desires. Father, I pray that we'll repent of that and worship only you that we'll live in your power, seek refuge in you, humble ourselves before you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please stand?